Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with Ipadrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Christiana Figueres. Christiana Figueres is a very well-known diplomat specializing in climate change. She was one of the lead negotiators on the Paris Climate Agreement. And she's the co-author of a book called The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis, which is a really practical guidebook for how to stave off and prevent the worst risks of climate collapse. She was interviewed by Rita Lashar of the BBC on the concrete actions that we can all take to safeguard our planet from climate change. And we hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Hello, I'm Rita Lashar, journalist for the BBC. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. And you can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Welcome, Christiana Figueres. Thank you very much for having me, Rita The future we choose... A manifesto, a creed occur, a handbook, a self-help book. How would you describe the book? What's its purpose? I think all of the above, depending on what, uh, how, how you come to the book and uh, your knowledge of climate change, your engagement with the topic and, and certainly the depth of your participation. What we wanted to do with this book is actually pierce through that very unhelpful boundary of a couple of thousand or maybe 10,000 people around the world who truly have devoted their lives to understanding climate change. And, you know, God bless them. And they have been incredibly helpful in all of this. 
and that is no longer enough. We have to be able to go beyond climate junkies, of which I am one. So you know, no, no disparaging uh, comment on on us, but to you know the person who we imagined as we were writing the book as the proverbial milkman who, who don't exist anymore. But the point is, how do we write a book about climate change that is understandable to everyone, no matter what walk of life you're in? That both explains the amazingly scary moment that we're in because we're in a very, very perilous moment in human history, but that walks you through it holding your hand throughout the whole book so that you don't get paralyzed by fear and grief, which sadly many people on the streets are, but rather that you look into the abyss of what could be and come out of that actually with a much stronger sense of what can each of us do. So why is this such a perilous moment? How do you explain that in the book? It's a perilous, actually, I think it's a powerful moment, not perilous. It's a powerful moment, a very powerful moment, because our parents never had the depth of understanding of the science on climate change. They certainly never had the technologies that can address climate change. And also, the world didn't have the accumulated capital or the experience with policy. And my generation has all of those advantages. We understand the science and the science is getting more granular and more detailed every day. But the science is telling us that we're on track to have... Exactly. 3.7 right now, which is where we will get to if we stay in a business-as-usual mode. But today, we understand the science. We have technologies. All of the renewable technologies, they have been coming down at least 80% over the past eight years in cost. So they're getting much more accessible, cheaper, much more competitive against the legacy industry of the fossil fuels. And, and we certainly have accumulated capital and we have policies that we know works. Now, we are the generation that can make a deliberate decision to change the course of our emissions. And we have to do that in this decade. Next generation, my children and my grandchildren, if I ever get any, will not have that option because it'll be too late for them. But so we, this is the moment in which we have the power and which must exercise the power. You talk about we have the power, but many individuals will feel in the face of a massive fossil fuel economy, global economy, massive industrialization. What can an individual do? Do I change my diet, cancel my summer holiday, sit down in the middle of the road and stay there until somebody chooses to listen? What do I do? Well, I don't recommend you sit in the middle of the street, although I must say the demonstrations of Extinction Rebellion here in London have truly raised the awareness and the consciousness of this. So, you know, my thanks for those who did sit in the middle of uh, uh, of the street because uh, they have really made quite an extraordinary difference. But to answer your question of what can the normal citizen who doesn't want necessarily to be arrested, which is the courage that Extinction Rebellion colleagues have, there are so many things that we can do. The, the first thing that we have to do is understand the consequences of not changing our daily habits and then really make deliberate choices about what we eat because eating red meat to start with is frankly getting to be a crime against this planet. 
And there are so many options that are coming forward, particularly in the UK, where there is so much awareness about plant-based diet possibilities. And there's so many other options on the market that are not animal-based. And what about the farmers who lose their livelihoods as more and more people make that, that kind of choice? Well, I don't think they have to lose their livelihoods. I think the challenge for them is actually to migrate how they make their livelihood. So it doesn't mean that we're no longer going to depend on land, does it? It actually means that we're going to regenerate land and we're going to have land that is more fertile because we will be capturing more carbon into the soil. We have land that is more fertile, that is more productive, that is treated as regenerative agricultural land, which is much better for the land, for the soil, for the farmers, because they make actually better profits of it and certainly for human health. So just because we have been trapped into one business model or one way of doing things or one way of thinking about things doesn't mean that we have to continue that. You know, the past does not have to determine the future. We have to be able to imagine a much better future that is better for individuals as well as for the planet and then act on it. Imagining a better future is is a big ask for the individual when in a sense that the the vision of the future as we understand the impact of climate change to be now is quite apocalyptic. How can you offer a brighter vision, a better vision? What is it that should make people feel that they, they actually have the power to arrive at this better, better place? Well, let's first describe the better place, right? Because I think that, um, that acts as a, as a pull force. Um, so one of the, one of the chapters, um, in, in the future we choose, uh, actually describes the better world that we all frankly want for our children. And it's a world in which we have regenerated the, the, or soil in which we have absorbed so much more carbon into the soil that it's much more fertile. We have actually gone into a huge mega planting project. You know, this book was written several months ago. And just last week, there was an announcement of an initiative to plant one trillion trees around the world. It's very fun because many of the things that we put out in the, in the book are actually already happening. Mega planting trees around um, a mega project around planting trees around the world. It is a a world in which our cities are actually being constructed, designed for people and not necessarily for cars and roads, because 60% of the infrastructure that we're going to need, we still even haven't built yet. Or it's a world in which existing cities all of a sudden have buildings that are capturing sunlight for energy on their walls, on their roofs, they're producing food and capturing water. And all those walls that are not capturing energy are actually verdant walls because they have green growing on them because the green is actually helping with the increasing heat. It's actually also a world in which we could become more humane, if I may say so. Less mechanistic, much deeper or much more deeply aware of ourselves and of our neighbors in which we go to a much more localized uh, economy where we do things closer to home. We don't transport ourselves crazily for two hours to go to work, but actually we can work so much, so much more time at home. We have more time for family. We have more time for growing our own organic food. And it's a world that actually makes us healthier, happier, longer living, and certainly a world that we can be proud to bequeath to our children.
It's a very particular vision, and I want to come back to that. But this is, in a sense, what you set out in the book, this vision of of how we can get there and, and where you hope to arrive, which you've just described beautifully. Let's go back a bit now and think about your career. You are famous, and I think that is the right word, for having negotiated the Paris Agreement, this sort of extraordinary drama of of last-minute negotiations and arriving at this finishing line that nobody quite expected to reach. It was a triumph. But now, when you see Donald Trump withdrawing the United States from the Paris Agreement, the recent lack of progress in negotiations, how do you feel? It's very far removed from the, the vision that you've just described. Yes. And I never assume that what is present or current is permanent. The fact is there's nothing permanent in this world and everything is in constant change. And even the occupancy of the White House is not permanent. So let's remember that piece, whether that means that there's going to be a change at the end of this year or not remains to be seen. But I guarantee that the current occupancy is not permanent. And eventually, at some point, we don't know when, there will be, again, responsible leadership in the United States. In the meantime, what is uh, remarkable to see is the reaction of the real economy in the United States, where more than 60% of the economy of the United States, which means the largest states, most of the largest cities, certainly the corporations and many other actors, continue to decarbonize and to invest in renewables and in clean technology because they understand that that is good for their economy. In fact, the one job that is number one in growth in the United States is wind turbine technician. It's not fossil fuel. It's not coal. It is wind turbine technician. And there are more and more jobs being created in those areas because those are the areas of growth. The fossil fuels have actually reached a plateau and they are going to be leaving, let's put it mildly and diplomatically, they will be leaving the global economy successfully. You know, And yet, and yet, and yet, so much of uh, wealth economy is invested in those fossil fuel industries. China, as we all know, is still building coal-fired power stations. It's not gone away. I mean, you're up against a a history and vested interests that have deep roots and a, a long past. Yes, which is why this is truly deep social, economic, political transformation. Uh, And we are are right in the middle of a transition and transitions are by definition always messy. But let's look back. You know, we we were in a transition at some point on transitioning out of institutionalized slavery until that actually was out of our economy. We have transitioned on human rights, for example, on sexual preferences. We have transitioned over. And when when you are in the middle of that, it does seem overwhelming. But it doesn't mean that sticking to the past is correct. At some point, we have to decide what is the right thing to do for the inhabitants of this planet and then just continue with a stubborn determination to get to the other shore as fast as possible. It doesn't mean that we're not going to hit our head against stones as we swim across. We will. That doesn't stop us. But so much of what you're advocating swims 
against how we have, how our economies have grown. So you talk about a localised economy. We live in a globalised world. Uh, you talk about people working together, sort of a multilateral approach. Well, possibly our politics have, haven't been as unilateral, as nationalistic as they are now uh, since before the Second World War. It feels as if the, the kind of the solutions you're advocating really run against the current of, of the political tide. And that's a good thing. And that's a very good thing because the consequence of following those patterns is actually disastrous. There is this, this is really where we are deciding whether humanity has a long life on this planet or we, whether we have a short life. And that is no hyperbole. That is no exaggeration. It is possible not recommendable, but it is possible that if we continue with those patterns of the past that you have very uh, uh, clearly described, that we will be causing natural conditions that make it practically or completely impossible for humans to live on this planet. So when the consequences are so grave, we have to be able to move forward. And in the beginning, it is not everyone. It is always leaders and early adopters who take the lead. But eventually, and now I would argue, Ritula, this is no longer, you know, a few isolated examples. And Davos last week, I was in Davos last week, and I thought that was very interesting because, you know, Davos puts its finger on where the economy is. For the first time, the risk survey that they do to leaders of industry and public sector leaders, they always do it every year. And they ask them, it's very widely distributed survey, they always ask them what are the main risks to economic growth and to global stability. Same question every year. This year, for the very first time, the top five risks identified by everyone are all environmental. Top risk number one, climate change. Top risk number two, climate change. Top risk number three, biodiversity and climate change. And then the other two other environmental issues. It's a very different world that we're in. And yet, and yet, and yet, President Trump, you know, spoke just hours after Greta Thunberg took to the stage. And, uh, you know, he talked about America's role as the world's biggest oil and gas producer and dismissed climate activists, people like you, as prophets of doom. Yes, and leader of the biggest economy in the world, leader of the free world, allegedly. With very little credibility on any topic that but is But a man who may well be elected again for yes. another term. Yes. He has, he has popular support. He has popular support, definitely. And, and that is very sad because those supporters do not understand what the reality of the motivation there is. And so that's very sad that they're not standing up for their own interests. And he may or he may not be reelected. Obviously, if the United States returns to serious, responsible leadership, issues such as climate change, but is it human rights, to say women's that? rights. If, if this is a man who is democratically elected, can you dismiss him as... No, no, I'm not dismissing him. I'm just saying he's completely irresponsible. That's not dismissing him. That is putting him exactly in the box where he belongs. Complete national and global irresponsibility. In which case, how much does it delay your journey towards that better future, towards that vision? I actually think that a four-year term with that kind of mentality has not affected us as much as we thought that it would in the beginning. Data point, the list of countries that have announced that they're leaving the Paris Agreement is as long as one, period, the United States. So no one has followed his example. Now, would an eight-year period have a much deeper effect? 
definitely it does make things much more complicated, but not impossible, not impossible, because frankly, those who are laboring for a decarbonized economy, in particular in protection of the most vulnerable populations around the world in every country, are on the right side of history. And history, the arc of history, always bends toward justice. People talk about climate justice, but isn't the difficulty of of this vision, this worldview, is that it is highly political. It assumes that people want to sign up to a particular way of living, this more a sharing economy, I'm going to call it, which if you've grown up in capitalism where you see competition, you see markets, you see making money, you see growth as the thing that you want to achieve, as a thing to strive for, you're actually asking people to turn that their political agenda, their political views on their head. And many people do have that political worldview. I, I don't think that I'm asking anyone to turn their political views on their head. I think uh, what we're saying is for your own benefit and, of course, for the benefit of future generations, you can do things differently. This is not about partisan politics. This is about how we humans choose to behave on this planet. That is way above any division of partisan politics. And I actually don't agree with you, Ridla. I think that we're already seeing signs uh, that in particular young people really get this. Millennials and those coming beyond after them have really understood the consequences of this, and they are showing very, very interesting signs. Point number one, they do not want to sell their brains to companies that are still being irresponsible on environment, on social, or in governance issues. They just don't want to. Point number two, those millennials that are in privileged position to inherit extraordinary wealth, and there are many under 40 40 years old who are inheriting uh, extraordinary wealth from their families, they no longer want to invest in fossil fuels. They no longer want to invest in assets that are going to lose value, but in, in addition are creating so much damage. They are moving their assets over. And they're also beginning, not just the privileged, but millennials in general, they're beginning to change their own attitude toward ownership. How many of those millennials do you think aspire to have a driver's license? Very few. How many of them aspire to owning a car? Even in developing countries, they are changing. They don't aspire to own a car anymore. They aspire to efficient transportation. So their mindset is already shifting. Transportation is no longer the result of a good that I own, but rather a service that I can actually benefit from. That is a completely different attitude toward how we live our lives. But do you think that that is, you talk about people in, uh, young people in, in economies that are still growing and developing. Do you think some of this is the luxury of the educated middle classes in first world countries who, who have had the benefits of privilege, the benefits of that economic growth that was fueled by fossil fuels? There is a lot of that, certainly. There's a lot of that. And certainly I think where that is most evident is in the food that we consume. So those of us who have grown up with extraordinary privileges understand that we have always had access to meat. Uh, and, and, and I understand that that has actually meant that we have not been very careful about our health. And now there is a growing demand from the public for plant-based diets and for plant-based products. 
in industrialized countries, mostly. Not as quickly, especially in developing countries that are emerging and that are bringing their populations out of poverty into the middle class, and where that middle class is saying, "Now I want my meat, and give me my meat." So there's definitely a、um, a discrepancy between, let's say, the middle class in privileged countries and the middle class, the new middle class rising in developing countries. Absolutely correct, and. The power of role modeling is still there. The reason why many of those people want X, Y, Z—it used to be a blue jean, now it's you know maybe a hamburger or whatever—is because they see their cohorts in other countries wanting that. So it's very important for countries who, for especially for young people who live in privileged countries and therefore are in privileged positions, it's very even more important. They should take care of their health and not eat meat that comes from animals, but they should also role model that because they're being watched by other people in other countries. Christiana, if you think back to the the negotiations we've had over climate change, Paris. And, you know the various conferences before that. There has always been this difference between the developed world and the developing states. Countries like China and India saying, "Whoa, you guys! You know we want some of the same advantages that you had when you grew your economies. You went through the industrial revolution. Why should we pay the price for your pollution?" Isn't that the single biggest roadblock? That it's quite hard to deny people the benefits of growth. It is morally irresponsible and unacceptable to deny anyone. The benefits of growth—that's not what this conversation is about. This conversation is actually the opposite. This conversation is about ensuring that, in particular, those who are the most vulnerable, who are the ones who are still in abject poverty, will not be hit by climate change because that's a double injustice, right? They were left behind by the industrial revolution, and now they're going to be most hit by the consequences of the industrial revolution and not benefited by the new energy revolution. That is just you know one hit after the other after the other. So let me put it you know that that's the mega understanding of this. Let me put it quite simply and very、um, very concretely. There are still eight hundred million. There used to be、uh, a billion, but we brought it down. So there's eight hundred million people around the world who still live in extreme poverty and. The basis of that extreme poverty is that they do not have access to energy because with energy everything starts. Now, if we continue to insist that those people will have access to energy through the traditional fossil fuel generation and the grid extension and the transmission lines and all the stuff that we have built around that energy system, they will never be electrified. Conversely. These people actually can have, and many of them are already installing with all kinds of incentives and and subsidies and help. They can install a little solar panel on their little hut. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter how far away they are from the grid. It doesn't matter if there's coal, if there's gas. It doesn't matter as long as they have sun. And most of them live in tropical countries. They can have a little solar panel. What that actually means is that they can have one light bulb at night, and their children can study. That ritola transforms that family forever. That solution is a solution that can only be brought by renewable energies, because renewable energy systems are completely distributed. You can put it anywhere. You don't need, you know, huge generation. So that is just you, and and you can argue that for many of the other measures. My point is that 
climate change is the greatest accelerator of social injustice. And addressing climate change, addressing climate change actually is a global social justice measure. So for you, do you think markets, as we've understood them in capitalism, and consumer power can be part of the answer? I believe markets have to be a part of the answer because there are very powerful signals that comes with that. So I'm not, you know, an anti-capitalist. I, I, I do feel that much of what we are suffering now is the result of the form of capitalism that we have exercised. But since, you know, it's, it's top of mind now because I just came away from Davos, there is, there is a difference between the kind of capitalism that has been geared exclusively toward profit and shareholder benefit. That is, I think, definitely one of the major causes of where we are. But stakeholder capitalism, which is a term that has been uh, developed by the leaders of Davos, is a very different issue, right? This is um, this is the capitalism that does not necessarily put profit of shareholders or benefit of shareholders as the primary force, but rather that understands that capitalism is here to much more broadly share the benefits among all stakeholders. And that's a very different form. I mean, if, if you take it to, you know, its ultimate consequences, you almost say, well, aren't we getting pretty close to socialism here? And it's an interesting question. There is a huge distance, let's say, between capitalism and socialism. But I don't think, I think the world has proven that neither of those two extremes have actually brought the kind of development that is going to be sustainable into the future. So we probably need to figure out something in the middle. Something new. Something new. Maybe it's stakeholder capitalism. Maybe it's something else. But there is an extraordinary amount of effort being made to reinvent how we how we operate. So that's the big background. The book talks very much about the role of the individual. Something that I think you describe very well, but which I think is an issue for many people. Many people may feel this is such a huge problem. And actually, it's not going to be resolved in my lifetime. Why should I worry? And I think you give, I'm going to let you tell the sort of the analogy, but you give a lovely analogy about a stonemason working on a, a cathedral. I and mean, just expand on that a little bit more. Well, first of all, we should realize that it is hitting us in our lifetime. And if and if if you need evidence for that, just check out the information on bushfires in Australia. That kind of level of fire is something that we describe in the book, but we thought we would see it down the line in 2040, 2050, but now it's here with us. So, you know, the, 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 the myth that climate change is going to hit us in the future after our lifetime, after we're gone, first of all, it's incorrect. And secondly, it is fundamentally unacceptable to say, I don't care, let my children deal with it because we're the ones that are at the decision table now. Um, but to your question, all of us who are overwhelmed, and I totally understand the overwhelm, right? I really, really understand the overwhelm because um, there is a part of me that also has huge appreciation for the complexity of what we're trying to do here. And the fact that every day I learn something new just underlines for me, oh, my God, yet another, you know, little little wrinkle in that complexity that even I wasn't aware of. So I, I fundamentally understand the overwhelm. I also huge parts of me are 
very sad and very pained about what we see happening. How can you not be sad when you see Australia on on fire? But, but why does that just make and, you want to hide under the duvet and cry and, and wish well, it Well, you can. Obviously, that's a choice. Mm. But what we argue in the book is you can choose to do, to do that, but that's not a helpful choice because that doesn't lead to any solution. So what we're inviting readers to do is perhaps a martial art wisdom of finding the energy that is in that despair, in that anger that we all feel, and transforming it into, so therefore, what can I do? And being very firm about what each of us can do, because each of us can do much. And the story that you know, you know that you are referring to is the story of a stonemason um, that is building a cathedral in medieval times. Actually, we're still building a cathedral in Barcelona, Indeed. which is quite wonderful. So, you know, we can even use a stonemason in Barcelona today. Um, and who totally understands that that cathedral, Barcelona has been in construction over 100 years. That cathedral is not going to be built by that one person. And necessarily in his lifetime. And certainly not in his lifetime. It probably takes two to three to four generations. But that doesn't stop the stonemason from taking every single piece of stone and carving it into the beautiful pieces that constitute eventually a cathedral. And... We have to understand that. We have to understand that each of us is contributing to the most powerful and most transformative movement that has ever existed on this planet. I mean, how can we not be just jumping out of bed and being excited to say, oh, my God, I am so blessed the, the, to be an adult at this moment in human history. The thing that is very striking about you is your relentless positivity, your relentless optimism. Yeah. Stubborn optimism is what I call it. <laughs> but why? How? Where does it come from? I mean, you're the person that has been in that negotiating room with a bunch of diplomats all trying to push back against what needs to be done. It's very simple because we don't have any other option. Who wants to sit back and say, okay, you know, screw it. Let future generations, you know, suffer the consequences of my irresponsibility. Frankly, that is not an option. That option, we just have to race off the table and say, right, we are the responsible adults. See it as a parent, right? All of us are parents, whether we have physical children, you know, that we have engendered or not. We're all parents to some child. We all have some child that we love. In our individual life, do we sit back and say, I'm not going to help this child. I'm not going to guide this child. I'm not going to be there to, you know, console them when they're in, uh, in, in, in fear. I'm not going to be there to support them. I'm not going to be there to love them. Just, you know, yes, it's a child that I love, but actually I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't exist and let them figure that out. We don't do that as individuals. Why do we do it at a planetary level? In the book, the third part is is called Ten Actions, and it's like a sort of a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous, but you know, ten steps you can take. I'm not going to ask you to go through them all, but which is the? Tell us about one or two of those that you think, in a sense, for you, a, a really a useful way for people to step out of their inertia, to to wake up to the challenge, and and stay positive as as you are. Well, um. I, I think that if we understand that this is a transition that uh, we need to make in 10 years, Rachel, right? It's not like tomorrow by tomorrow morning. But waking up to the fact that each of us will contribute to this incredibly powerful and deep transformation 
over the next 10 years. It's not and a long what, time. It's not a long years time. to make the transformation so, you're talking be, about. Because, because of where we have to be in 10 years. Mm. So we have to, and, and this is what we recommend in the book, figure out what your plan is. What is your plan that is going to guarantee, and I use that word intentionally, what is going to guarantee that on the 1st of January of 2030, each of us will be at one half the emissions where we are right now. And what that means, when I mean each of us, I mean if you are an individual, do it for yourself. If you're the head of a family, do it for your family. If you're the CEO of a corporation, do it for your corporation. If you are the mayor of a city, do it for your city. But what does that mean? It means flying less, getting rid of your it car? It means many different things. That's the wonderful thing about it, right? There's no one one thing, but we do lay out a menu. But basically, you know, what are the things that we can all look at? We can all look at what are we eating? We can all look at how are we transporting ourselves. We can all look at how we waste energy, in particularly in this wonderful country that I used to live in and very much miss. Energy efficiency in this country is just beyond belief, beyond belief. We, you know, we heat the, the buildings in this country, gorgeous architecture, but completely inefficient. We have not invested enough into energy efficiency. What that means is you're paying too much for your electricity and for your power because you're heating not only your own home, you're heating the park and, and, and the homes of all of your neighbors. Stupid. So we should actually look at how are, what are we eating and how are we producing what we eat? How are we transporting ourselves? What is the energy efficiency of our homes and buildings? What kind of uh, electricity are we purchasing? And kudos to the UK that has come down remarkably off of coal. This is the country where the Industrial Revolution was born. This is where the tradition of coal burning was born. Kudos to the to the UK that has come down remarkably off of coal and really has the majority of electricity now being produced by offshore wind and gas. So a very interesting transformation. But also, Ritula, those who are in the privileged position of having some savings do you know where your savings are? If your savings are in high carbon, in especially into any coal assets, you're going to lose your jacket on that because those assets are losing value. In addition to propping up an industry that uh, should be leaving the economy and going into the museum very quickly. So many things that each individual can do. And of course, speaking of the United States, of course, voting, whether it is at a communal level, at a local level, at a national level, that is clearly important. I come from Costa Rica and this Sunday we have municipal uh, elections and honestly every Costa Rican is going out to vote because it is our responsibility and it's our responsibility to choose those leaders who understand the consequences. I imagine that much of the audience listening to this podcast is broadly sympathetic or sympathetic to some degree to the vision that you describe. But how do you reach those who really, who don't want to see this change? They're very, doing very nicely, thank you. They love their big car, their flying around the world, their, you know, their luxury lifestyle. How do you reach those people? Um, you know, m much as I devote my life to climate change, I I don't have climate change tattooed on my forehead. I do have a different tattoo, and it's not on my forehead. Um, but I don't tattoo climate change on my forehead because I don't think that's helpful. So my attitude with um, with other people is not to preach to other people, but rather to understand and ask questions. And I always want to know what is important to them. 
what is their vision of the future? What do they want for their inheritors and future generations? And out of that, to find and to tweeze out of that where there can be a tiny little sliver of self-interested action that they determine, not that I impose on them but rather that they determine and then encourage them to act on that and then begin to grow it for their own self-benefit and for them to feel good about it. We're going to wrap up this conversation. There is an apocalyptic vision uh, in the book, in in much of the writing about climate change, uh, about what may happen if we don't change, if we don't change our ways. But what would be the one message of optimism you would take people you would give people to hang on to? My one message is wake up to the fact that individually and collectively, for the first time in history, we are holding the pen. We wield the power of what kind of a life we're going to have and hundreds of generations after us. That is an extraordinary responsibility, but it's also an extraordinary opportunity. And we have to stand up and exercise that opportunity. Christiana Figueres, thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.